we're in the narrative of Jesus' suffering. And, of course, in one sense, all of his life was full of suffering, but now we're in the great suffering headed to the cross, and we're very, very close now. And we come to this interesting story found in all the Gospels right before Jesus heads to uh, the cross. And Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more. Now, that once more, this is the third time Pilate's done this. The first time was in chapter 23, verse 4. I find no guilt in this man. The second time was, um, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges in verse 14. So when he addresses them once more, this is the third time Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. You know, mob justice didn't begin in the United States in the last ten years, you know. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Just because they were loud, and what does he want? He wants them to quiet down. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. For whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Father, we thank you for your holy and eternal word. Thank you that it is eternally true. Thank you that it reveals to us your Christ, your Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we pray that we would behold this morning His great work and great love for His church. And that You would give us eyes to see the glories of Your Gospel, of its saving power to the ends and uttermost parts of the earth to the furthest sinner, to the most enslaved and in greatest bondage, that Jesus is salvation. And this salvation is found in no one else except for Him. And so we thank You for our dear Lord and we pray that Your words would enliven our hearts to worship and exalt Him and to serve Him whatever befall us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 
Well, there's some truths in the Christian life that absolutely can't be changed or altered or compromised in any way, shape, or form without losing all of their significance and all of their meaning. And by that, I mean there are some truths in Scripture and in the Christian life that we absolutely cannot disagree about. There are some truths in the Christian life that must be held to as core to what is the gospel that apart from which there is no gospel at all. And there are some truths that are so central in Scripture that to remove them is to not be Christian any longer. It is to be counted among the lost. And when we come to this narrative in the, in the middle of, you know, we kind of think of Jesus is just going to the cross right now, and here's this kind of weird story about Barabbas. And we're not entirely sure what he's here for, but um, what I want to set forth to you is that uh, Barabbas is a story that teaches us the theology of one of the most central and important truths of, the, of Christianity. That apart from the nature, apart from the truth of what Barabbas, this story with Barabbas and Jesus and this weird exchange that seems to be happening here, apart from this, you lose everything that's Christian. Everything that's Christian. There is no gospel, there is no salvation. And here's what I want you to think when you read the story of Barabbas. I want you to think um, not just that we see the bloodlust of the people. We've been seeing that for a long time in the Gospel of Luke. The leaders and now the mob who have incited them. It's not just about their hatred of Jesus and our hatred of Jesus that in narrative form, in a story, what's being set forth here is the penal substitution is substitutionary atonement, or uh, as it's been called sometimes, the vicarious atonement of our Lord. That what's happening here is Jesus as substitute for Barabbas. Now, we'll get more into the details of that in a moment, but um, when you read this narrative, I want you to think theologically, why is this here? Why is this story here? Why does it find itself right before, um, right before Jesus' final condemnation of, you know, before he's headed to Calvary? Why is this here? And the reason is because Luke understood and the Holy Spirit knew in writing the words of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit wrote the words of Scripture, every last one of them. The whole thing and every word. And he knew that Jesus was a substitute for the sins of his people, to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. And so there's this narrative exchange that is in, 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 in the providence of God, in unfolding the nature of Christ's suffering, is this exchange between Jesus and Barabbas to teach us the heart of the gospel. And if you lose anything about Jesus paying the penalty in the place of, for the sins of, His people, you entirely lose the Gospel. And so it seems obvious to us, who are Christians, that that would be true, but um, there have been a whole host of ways to explain what Jesus is doing in His work here, headed towards the cross and on the cross, that are entirely not Christian at all in any way, and understood in ways that are 
unable to save people's souls, unable to pay actually for their sins. And so um, I'm going to give you three really quickly. The first misunderstanding of what's happening here in the work of Christ on his cross is that Jesus is paying a ransom to Satan. And this heresy goes back all the way to origin, which is way, way, way old. It's actually also the theology of C.S. Lewis, if you didn't know. And you know that when you watch uh, or read the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Who does Aslan pay the penalty to? Aslan pays the penalty to the Satan figure, right? That's what happens. That's the theology of C.S. Lewis. It's a heresy that's been uh, long, I mean, thousands of years old almost. It's a ransom to Satan. Except that where in Scripture is the penalty for sin ever paid to Satan? Where is that ever, ever understood? And why would a penalty be paid? Why would a price need to be paid to Satan? Our primary offenses are not against Satan. We've been well on his side. What price would there need to be paid for that? We are children of wrath, sons of disobedience as the rest, Ephesians chapter 2, in and of ourselves. What price would need to be paid to Satan? Our offense is against the God of heaven. So this is nonsense. This is not the penal substitution. And when you have this, you lose the gospel. You lose good news that your sin is actually paid for the price paid to the Father by whom you are in debt and whom you owe your penalty. It can't be that. That's not Christian. Probably the most influential and kind of subtly influential that's kind of the haze. You know, I just, I just call it the Christian haze that we live in in this country is the moral influence theory of the atonement. And the moral influence theory is um, that God, so the suffering of Christ here on the cross is how God shows us His love because He identifies with human suffering. And because we see that He loves us so much that He identifies with human suffering, we think, wow. We have a God in heaven who identifies with human suffering and we think that's neat and somehow we love him in response because we're grateful that we have a God who identifies with human suffering. Now, do we have a God who identifies with human suffering? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now Jesus is our example of just how to identify with people who are suffering. And so the moral influence theory really is what undergirds all of Christian liberalism. It's what removes entirely that Jesus had to pay a penalty. And the reason Jesus, the Son of God, the second person, can you imagine how wicked you must be if the second person of the Trinity is the one who had to pay the price for it? So the thought that somehow... All the atonement is, is we have a nice heavenly father and he is compassion on people's suffering and we're just glad that he's like that. And that's all that it is. Completely undercuts the heart of the gospel. 
it completely undercuts Jesus Christ in my place. It's entirely unchristian, I will tell you. Places that gather on Sunday morning, and this is the kind of thing that they talk about week after week after week, mostly fueled by all kinds of social action on all kinds of social issues to identify with suffering people. And we should be a kind of people who identify with suffering people, which is why it's so attractive, but it's so deceptive, because it never deals with a penalty. It never deals with the fact that, no, you are wicked. You need a Christ who pays the price of death for you. For God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were failing a little bit in identifying with human suffering, Christ came and identified with human suffering to be the best moral influence and example for us to follow. Is that what Scripture teaches? The third one is similar. It's just the example theory of the atonement. Um, And it's just that Jesus' sacrificial death was just a good example for us to follow in sacrificing for the good of others. And that's it. And for the same reasons, it is entirely not Christian. And so what you have here preserved for us in Scripture forever is this beautiful narrative, you know? I'm glad that God doesn't always just work like an engineer, you know? He doesn't just tell us, you know, black and white propositions. He actually gives us this whole story that actually really happened in the middle of the cross, a narrative, in the middle of Jesus' greatest suffering for us to never lose sight of how central a substitution for sinners is to the heart of our Christian faith and apart from which, there is no gospel. If this isn't a picture of penal substitution, that Christ paid a penalty as a substitute, in my place, condemned He stood, that if you don't have this, you have no crosswork of Christ that matters for anything. And if you're wrong here, you're entirely wrong. And if you're wrong here, you will die and perish in your sins because there's been no price paid for you. And if you do not believe this, you cannot be a Christian. And I want you to be a Christian, and so I'm telling you the truth about what's put forth here by God Himself to you, that there is actually good news because Christ in the place of Barabbas. Now why, undergirding all of these erroneous views, why? Why undergirding this? What's undergirding every error that keeps us from understanding that a price had to be paid. A death penalty. There was guilt that had to be dealt with. Justice had to be served for our law-breaking. Why undergirding this is the rejection of all of that. You know, well, coming out of the human heart, you'll always see all kinds of questions come out, right? Like, how could a good God, how could a good God condemn good people to hell? How could a good God condemn good people to hell? Well, 
The truth is, he's never done that. A good God has never condemned good people to hell. A good God brings justice to lawbreakers and rebels and sinners, and he condemns them to hell. And they bear his wrath. But this is man's logic, standing in judgment of God, right? It cannot embrace that we're not good. Except Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. Why do you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Yeah, but I've kept all the commandments. I've identified with the suffering of sufferers. And Jesus says, you have entirely missed the point. You have entirely missed the point. Ever since the beginning, man has been rebelling against God. I mean, you look at the church today. If you look at the church today and compare it to Scripture, how can you think anything other than man is a rebel against God in the church house, let alone outside it? Shepherds don't even care about what the law of God says anymore. The, the, the Bible is lost in the church. I, just, I hope that our church works to help us find it again. And we do work like Josiah and tear down all the altars and all the high places and actually see life come back into the church and the worship of God. But undergirding this is this, you know, how does a good God cast good people into hell, right? You know? How do, I mean, we're decent people. How could God be just and cast good people into hell? Well, God is just and he has never cast a good person there. But see, undergirding it is this refusal to embrace the truth of who Scripture says we are and who we actually already know we are. I want to save myself, so I've got to be better than the, my own conscience condemning me. I don't want to have to depend on Christ. I will save myself. And I'm... In fact, just good enough to do that. And we, I can't remember, I wish I could remember exactly how this sentence went. But our men were reading Calvin's Institutes yesterday morning, some of them. And there was this great statement about how we're always exalting ourselves and we compare ourselves with other people and, you know, we... Um, see their wickedness greater than ours. And then we look at our wickedness and we think, we're as pure as a spotless lamb. You know, we see their gaping wound, you know. And so we think, oh, well, we just have a cut. Oh, this is, the, this is the meaning of all and symbol of all and example of all righteousness. Just because it's not as bad as their gaping wound. How can a good God cast good people into hell? Is this, this thought that man is basically good undergirds every effort to remove the penal substitution of Jesus Christ. In Scripture, a way different question is asked than that. From the beginning, a way different question is asked. The question is not, how can a good God send good people to hell, the, the question really is quite different than that. 
It's how can God be just and forgive sinners at all? How can God be just and save sinners at all? That's the question of Scripture. And it starts way back in the Old Testament. And it's a mystery. How can a good God save sinners? How can He overlook their sins and grant forgiveness? This, if you actually read the Bible and you had sense, that's the question you would be wrestling with. How can God be just and forgive sinners? You have the holy, perfect, righteous, blazing glory of God. And you have us. How could he forgive us? How could he be just? What judge do you exalt who constantly just sends criminals free? Let him fill the streets. Let him fill the ends of the earth, the criminals. Put him in the courtroom on the bench. That's who I want there. Well, the answer to that question is the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It's this story right here laid before us. The work of Christ paying the price for sinners. Now, We're already doing this, but I do want you to think, when you see this narrative, there's a lot of things going on here, but I think it's easy actually to read this story and miss that what this is, is the substitution, substitutionary atonement. It's easy to read this and not see that what's happening here is intensely theological, that it's a narrative to teach a theological point, a narrative to teach the heart of the gospel. I want you to read this story and I want you to think theologically about it. What is the theology of this story? Well, I've said it in you know, simple terms or just plain terms, substitutionary atonement or the vicarious atonement. Vicarious meaning one who stands in the place of, a vicar stands in the place of and, or represents another and Christ is the vicar who is standing in our place representing us. And so the theology of the story or substitution that I need one in my stead to pay a penalty that I cannot pay. And so he dies instead of me. Jesus dies instead of Barabbas. The theology is that the author of life takes the place of a murderer who takes life. If this Barabbas, he is an insurrectionist, so he's some kind of rebel. We don't know anything really about this insurrection or what group he was a part of. We just know that he was guilty of some sort of rebellion and partaking of it. And he's a murderer. He killed people. And so the author of life takes the place of one who takes life. Or Jesus is the one being murdered. 
in the place of a murderer. This guilty Barabbas is released from prison and goes free. And Jesus is condemned innocent, but condemned as guilty. Jesus treated worse than violent criminals. And we've already seen that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He said it three times. Later, next week, the thief on the cross knows Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He rebukes the other guy. He's like, you and I are here because we're guilty. This man's done nothing wrong. Theology is Jesus in the place of the substitute for Barabbas. The theology is the Son of God in the place of a son of murder. Theology is the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. The innocent in the place of the guilty. The theology is Christ in the place of sinners. When you read this narrative, what you have to come to grips with is that you are Barabbas. You are Barabbas. And when you hear that, one impulse is to kind of think, just feel bad about yourself. Just to feel bad about yourself. And in some sense, you know, that's true. I mean, I want you to know shame and to feel shame and for it to help you seek Jesus. But to kind of look at it and go, man, if I am Barabbas and... Jesus had to die for me and just kind of to think bad about yourself and not really go any further than that. Barabbas isn't the center point of the story, though. And so it's important that you understand that you're Barabbas. But that's not the whole of the narrative. The point of the narrative is that Jesus is willing to die in the place of Barabbas. And when you know that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that He loves the world, that Jesus loves Barabbas enough to take His place. Oh, we don't know that Barabbas ever believed anything about Jesus. For all we know, Barabbas went on to continue to be a criminal and um, never understand the work that was done in his place. but to look at the narrative and see what is Jesus doing here? And it's more than just concluding, I'm Barabbas. 
It's looking at good news about Jesus and what it means for people like Barabbas. But we understand when we look, we have to understand first, we are Barabbas, right? And then we look at Jesus and we see Jesus' innocence. And there's something very important I want you to understand about Jesus' innocence. The way we tend to think about innocence is either kind of, we, we think about it in children before they become aware of the nature of the way things are in the world. Or we think of innocence, and this is closer to what's going on here, we think of innocence as just being not guilty. But when you think of Christ, you have to think of Jesus not just as innocent in the sense of He's not guilty. Now, in the narrative, He's not guilty of the crimes that they are uh, convicting Him for by mob justice. We studied last week about those things, all of the accusations against Him and the charges they bring Him. They're all untrue and they're all lies, right? It's all just slandering Christ with false witness in order to have Him killed. So he's not guilty of those charges, but you have to think about Christ, his innocence, as being more than not guilty. Jesus wasn't just not guilty. He is a spotless lamb. He is a lamb without blemish or spot, Peter calls him. He is perfect righteousness. His innocence is perfect righteousness. You know, there's a song written years ago and it was about it was about justification and you know and it was you know it was justified just as if I'd never done anything wrong. And that's true to a point, but that's not true enough. It's just as if I'd always done everything right. You have to remember that sin is both omission and commission. It's both not doing the things I should do to be righteous and doing the things I ought not to do. And for Jesus, in Him, is not just that he didn't do what he shouldn't have. It's that he always did fulfill the law of God in perfect righteousness. He came to fulfill the whole law perfectly. And he had to fulfill the whole law perfectly. And where Adam, when we studied all the way back at the beginning of Luke, that um, Jesus is the last Adam, where Adam failed Christ was righteous. Where Adam sinned, Jesus was righteous. And Christ must be innocent by way of fulfilling all righteousness. Remember, he was baptized. Why? In order to fulfill all righteousness. Not baptized for the forgiveness of sins the way we think about it. Or because of the forgiveness of sins. Not like that. but in order to fulfill all righteousness, to fully identify with His people. He must obey every command and perfect love to His Father 
He must have perfectly honored his mother. I mean, he would be odd to be a sibling of. (laughs) You know? Always the one giving of himself, even as a child. He must do what the law commands. He must not do what the law forbids perfectly. From his heart, in glad obedience to his Father in heaven. Of course, when he is, and that is true of him, right? That is true of him. And this is why he is a sacrifice who can pay the penalty for our sins in our place because he is the one who fulfills all righteousness. This is what Scripture says all over the place. When we're talking about the penal substitution of Christ, we're talking about him being a sacrifice. This is what Hebrews 9 says, nor nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared, Jesus, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He's a sacrifice in the place of sinners. Now, when you think of sacrifice, when we think of the word sacrifice, we think about, you know, we we think kind of about I don't know, the cost that comes with doing something sacrificial for somebody, you know. But when, we're, when you're thinking about sacrifice and the work of Christ, and we're saying he is a sacrificial offering, he is a sin offering, then what we're talking about is a sacrifice that paid a penalty to make God favorable to his people. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about, we're not just talking about a cost that he embraced. You know, we're not talking about just the simplicity of sacrifice that kind of denied self, although that's true. It's actually a payment that's paid in full in fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system of what, you you realize when you read Leviticus, ask yourself this question, what did the sacrificial system accomplish in terms of removing people's sins. You read it. You go, what was the effect of that sacrificial animal to remove people's sins? And what you realize then when you read Leviticus is, the whole point of Leviticus, when you see the blood, I mean the blood, the amount of blood, blood everywhere, on everybody, on everything. Just the blood everywhere. And you realize that when you read Leviticus, one of the whole points of Leviticus is to tell you what they didn't do. (laughs) And how insufficient it is. I mean, do you really think the blood of bulls and goats, if you were to go sacrifice one in your backyard, can deal with your sins? Right? 
That's the, so when you read Leviticus, the, it leaves you, if you're, if you're reading it right, you're going, but what about my sins? You need as a Christ who is a sacrifice worthy of paying for them forever. No. And when you have that, you have the end of the passage. When you have a Christ who takes away your sins forever, you have the substitute and you have the end of the passage. Did you see the end of the passage? You've got to see the end of the passage. Because I really want you to leave thinking about the end of the passage. Verse 25, look down at it. I want you to see it. He released, Pilate, the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. It's like, just makes me want to start singing. For whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And so you, when you have a Christ who is the sin offering that takes away the sins of the world, all of His people who have believed, you are released. You go free. You're no longer considered guilty for the sins you have committed. It's as if you actually walk out of the prison where you're awaiting the sentence of death for you, for the wages of sin is death. It's as if you walk out of the prison released and free and not only not guilty, but clothed with robes of righteousness. Have you ever seen a calf? Have you ever seen a calf skip out of its stall after maybe a, a long snowy winter? Think about a place that's dark through the winter and the snow is piled up and all through the winter it's in the barn because there's no grass and there's no pasture and the calf is young and born and that. But wait, things warm up in the spring and the, gra- and the snow starts to melt and the grass starts to grow and, and at some point that farmer walks out and opens the stall of that calf and that calf runs out into the grass. Have you ever seen this? You have to see this. Because this is the nature of the release from prison. That calf just skips all over the place. It kicks its legs around in gladness as it explores the boundaries of its pasture for the first time. It's really amazing. It's the nature of what the Christian life is when the text says right here, He released the man who had been thrown in prison. Skipping like a calf loosed from its stall. I'm free to love once and for all. Or can you imagine? Can you imagine? After living, imagine a family, you know, like one of the families here. 
you know, mid-late 20s, early 30s, handful of kids, living under the dictatorship after the communist revolution in Cuba. And, of course, after Castro took over, a lot of people fled Cuba. But imagine a family who was there who didn't really know how to get out, didn't have the means to get out, barely able to survive, food shortage, starvation. No hope for ever changing anything because any effort that you put in to try to change anything is, you know, just arbitrary sentencing and imprisonments. And all the horrible things that living under that regime brings upon your family because he is a cold, harsh dictator. For the good of the people, right? They're starving. And you don't have much hope as a family. You don't even know if you're going to be able to feed your kids enough for them to live. And so what you do is you make a raft. And you gather some stuff up along the beach that's just washed up. And you make a raft out of it. And you, you hope that you're actually going to be the one who's going to make it to some Florida coast. And you set sail on this raft. Can you imagine, after living under that kind of slavery, what it would be like to actually see that coast? And what it would be like to actually, for the first time, set your sight on some sand? And to know that in your life and the life of your family, that cold, harsh dictator is dead to you? And you climb off the raft and you bound through the last few feet of water and the waves and you go and you just fall on the sand. Let's see. Or can you think about any of you colorblind? No one. Think about a person who's colorblind and everything's more grayish. And then they put on those glasses and they see color. They see vibrancy and they see not just gray and dark from, and, and they see color for the first time and they weep and they just say, is this what you see? Is this how you always see? Imagine the freedom from that. Now think, what's the main point? The main point is, you don't have to imagine a scenario like that to understand the nature of what's happened. Because it's not something that's something you imagine. It's something that's actually transpired for all of God's children who believe in a penal substitution. 
that I needed a sacrifice to pay a penalty for my sin, for me to be made right with God. If I was ever going to be set free, well, set free from what? Right? You understand that you were in bondage to sin. Sin and Satan. Children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Right? The prince of the power of the air, the enemy, holding us in bondage and darkness and blindness and ignorance and willful rebellion against God that we could not get out of by ourselves held in this prison, nor would we even have wanted to get out of the prison. That's the nature of our enslavement to ourselves and our sin and our rebellion against God, right? I wouldn't even wanted to get out of the prison. And Jesus breaks into the prison and sends you out so that you're no longer ruled by the dominating, domineering power of sin any longer. He kills the power of sin's tyrannical rule like someone getting away from Cuba and realizing the cold, harsh dictator is dead to them. Freed. From your conscience constantly bearing witness to you that your life doesn't please God and that He's angry about it. Freed from the fear of death that enslaves you because you know that if you left in your sins, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Freed! Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Freed! from feeling within yourself constantly God's anger against you because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Freed from living a life in sin, maybe addiction, and weighed down by it and wondering, wanting to get free from it because you see how screwed it up it is and another part of you not wanting to get free from it and just wanting to get high again and stuck in a terrible cycle that you cannot get out of and knowing your life isn't right with God, freed from that. Freed from feeling the condemnation of God Himself in heaven. Freed from real condemnation from God in heaven. Freed. So that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. None. Roll around in the sand and kiss the ground. Skip like a calf in the pasture. See life and the abundant life that you have in Christ and worship the One who died in your place and released you. So what does all this mean? It means that every liar... Every person whose life has been consumed with lying and, you know, we're good liars in the church. It means every liar will not pay who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
will not pay the penalty for their lives. The guilt for those lives was upon Christ. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, right? so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Not that He became sin. He didn't become sin. Jesus never became sin. He never was a liar. Right? That's, that's entirely the wrong way to think about Christ. What He did is He bore our guilt for our sin. His nature never became corrupt with sin. It's very important that you understand that about Christ. Does this mean? It does mean that every covetous woman, every covetous woman who wants to no end, causing misery for everyone, it means that she can be set free means she can be set free from all of that bondage and discontentment and ungratefulness and rebellion against God and idolatry of her way is the only way and I'm unhappy until it's the, that's my way is the way. She can be set free from that misery. It means that every man who has grown up timid and been a coward because most of us haven't had good fathers who had any guts anymore. Can actually learn courage and boldness for the sake of Jesus Christ and for his gospel and can, can be set free from just constantly being afraid of everything all the time. Can be free to actually trust God and have faith and live by it. It means all of the sexually immoral all of the sexually immoral, we do people in the church no good by not calling sin, sin. Do you realize when we don't call sin, sin, and the church starts to just accept, you know, the cultural sins of the day, like in Bloomington all the time, you realize we keep Jesus from people? You realize we keep Jesus from people when we don't tell them their sins. So every homosexual in Bloomington, it means that if they would see, this is Barabbas. I'm in a prison of wickedness. I need a Christ to pay the penalty for me. And if they would see it, they would get released and go free. That's what it means. We can't take sin. We can't stop calling sin, sin. We take Jesus from people. means that every sexual immoral man and woman and child can go free from the prison and bondage of all of the wickedness of it. It means every divorced person can go free. It means every sin that you've committed in your marriage and that's been committed against you for all who believe is paid for and you can go free to actually live in glad obedience to God. And wouldn't you want to follow every command of God everywhere you go? Because He's this good to you. He's this good to you at a cross. How good must His commands be too? He's restoring to you and setting you free how He created you to live in the fullness of freedom and blessing. 
whom the Son sets free is free indeed, right? And any other list of particular sins right, that plague us. All you have to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ as your penal substitution. And God the Father will release you from the prison just like He released Barabbas. Have you done that? And if you have, would you be a little more glad about it? Stand with me for prayer, would you? Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you wanted us. And Father, that your love was set upon us, that you exchanged Christ for Barabbas. You exchanged Christ for me and for your church. That rebels are made your own. That we have a substitute who died in our place. Thank you for removing the whole huge boulders of guilt that weighed down our lives in misery and in darkness and removing them and releasing us to live in righteousness with You and before You by the power of Your Spirit. So Spirit, would You help us to live in the, in the freedom that You've given? To not return to the chains. To not think that we're somehow going to grow apart from Christ now. To return somehow to rules and regulations that we were, thought we were supposed to follow before we ever came to Christ. And may You give us strength to obey all that You command us. That we might glorify You and display Christ and adorn Christ in the church and in the world everywhere we go for the fame of Jesus Christ. Thank You for Your people here for whom You have died in their place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank You, Jesus. We praise You in Your name. Amen.